This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramount Plus. issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Now, you may have seen um, back in August that hoarding had been classified by the World Health Organization as a mental disorder, something that's been welcomed by hoarders and by experts and by children of hoarders, one of whom is our colleague and friend Hazel Davis. And we asked her if she could do a piece for us about it. And she has certainly come up trumps. This is a very frank piece about what life is like living with a hoarder. I'm going to hand you over to Hazel now, who will be able to explain infinitely better. And I will speak to you again at the end because I have other things to tell you if you want to listen out for that. school I had a friend called Debbie Jones she was funny silly and ludicrously pretty and I adored her we were inseparable nearly every Friday night I'd go to her house one day she asked when she could come to my house and I made the first of many excuses lies my dad was ill we had builders in visitors she never came I made the excuses and would make them with other friends to stop them seeing the squalor we lived in this was squalor which included piles of clothes on the settee and dining table dried catsick on my bedroom floor really margarine tubs with ants in You name it, we had it hoarded somewhere. Two weeks ago, the World Health Organisation classified hoarding as a mental health disorder. And while it doesn't change my childhood, it certainly makes it easier to talk about. It's enabled me to reclassify my childhood as being one which featured dealing with a parent with mental health issues. That somehow validated it, made me feel less ashamed and made me feel like there was a reason behind uh, everything we went through. I spoke to psychotherapist Rachel Morris about hoarding, where it comes from and what it means. What is hoarding? What is hoarding? It's really difficult to say what hoarding is because there are so many different levels of hoarder. We've got something like uh, you saw on Channel 4 with the extreme hoarding where uh, people build tunnels with newspapers out of their house and then create these tiny little pockets of spaces for themselves to live in. Um, There are hoarders who are people who are afraid that they're never going they're going to run out of something or that they're going to waste something an opportunity or um, a margarine carton might present uh, an opportunity in the future that they won't be able to forgive themselves you know, for disabusing themselves of that because they threw it away there's lots of different reasons for all these people who keep clothes bags and bags of clothes in their attic um, because one day they're going to be thin enough to get back into them or, uh, or that fashion might come back in again. I think money, poverty, is at the heart of a lot of uh, some people's hoarding issues. So if you grew up poor, there's a good chance that when you 
spend money on something nice. It probably took a lot for you to do that, to give yourself the right to do that. So you're unlikely to ever throw that away because that will be wasteful. And I think waste, if you've grown up poor or you've grown up with a kind of Catholic mentality that says, you know, everything you don't enjoy was something taken directly out of the mouth of a, of a poor African starving child. So there's all sorts of different levels of hoarding. And it can literally go from uh, somebody who's bought a garden shed to make room for their Tupperware because there's nowhere left in the house to put it. So something might be seen as a bit... Eccentric? Yes. Um, So it can go from somebody being a little bit eccentric, uh, a bit um, enthusiastic about collections, because collecting is different. I was going to ask you that, because I've talked to people a lot about my mum's hoarding, and they go, oh yeah, I'm a hoarder too, I've got shelves and shelves of books and things, and I think... That isn't that isn't hoarding, is it? That's collecting. Yeah. And what are the key differences? How do you know when you when you're presented with hoarding versus collecting? Um, hoarding causes an immense amount of stress and turbulence and turmoil, not just in the life of the hoarder, but in everybody that they come into contact with. And that isn't necessarily the close family, but also distant family, neighbours. The town council can become involved. There's sometimes health issues and safety issues and certainly health considerations. So you know a hoarder as opposed to somebody who likes to collect things or struggles to throw things away by the nature of the neurosis. It's neurotic and potentially pathological. Can you explain what that means? Okay, exactly. Um, It's neurotic in that it's something that creates a whole kind of brainstem chemistry so when we say that something's neurotic it literally means that it attends to a nerve to the nervous system so it's part of the fear freeze flight and fight system and that somehow being surrounded by the things that you are hoarding is a means of keeping yourself safe from a perceived danger from a real threat a perceived or real threat the brain doesn't know the difference between a real or a perceived threat. But the hoarder believes that in some way the things that they are collecting around them will keep them safe from whatever that danger is. Somebody who just likes to collect stuff may also be afraid of something. So um, say a person who's grown up poor and uh, has collected some nice clothes that are now out of fashion uh, or that no longer fit them but can't throw them away because they're afraid of the feeling that they may have wasted something. So they still protect the person from something they don't want to feel. It's the level of fear, I guess, that describes the difference. And how, with that in mind, how, how on earth can you get through to a hoarder then if, if that's protecting them? Presumably that's breaking down their barriers completely and that's terrifying for them because yeah. so what's the answer? <laughs> well, the answer is that you never come at it from the front. The very first thing we have to do when confronting anybody about something they're afraid of is to identify that the fear itself is a smokescreen or a mist, a sort of fog that we put out there to protect ourselves from knowing the real reason that we collect. Because the real reason feels uh, feels like a reality, feels like a truth, feels like a fact. Whereas fear is just a feeling, as long as we keep it nice and foggy and smoky and nebulous, 
then we'll never have to know the reality. It's a bit like a monster under the bed. If you feel there might be a monster under the bed, uh, but you refuse to look to see if there's a monster under the bed, then you just lie rigid with fear all night. You don't sleep and you wake up exhausted uh, to do it all over again the next day. If you were able to find the courage to shine a light under the bed and see that there was no monster, you know there was one really. But if you could see it for yourself, then you could get on with your night's rest and you could build a life. And if you imagine that in a house, if I believe there's a monster under the bed, I'm not going to tell anybody about that because they'll say there isn't one, but I know there is. So I'm going to erect some really complicated system around the bed so I never have to stand on the floor. I've begun my hoarding process. Then I start to, I've moved out of the bedroom altogether. So then I've locked the door on the bedroom. Now I start to pack stuff up around the hall so that I can't get into the bedroom. So then I can forget there's a bedroom there altogether. Then I forget there's a hall there because the hall is so filled with stuff. And this just keeps spreading out. It's a bit like you lock your fear away into one tiny little place. And as long as you completely fill every single space, then you'll never have to remember that it's there. That's really fascinating. Do you think that there's always a root cause, like a, a tra- such as a trauma or a memory or a, something that has triggered that, or can it just be a, a disorder that you might be born with? I think what, something worth mentioning at this point is that really extreme hoarders or extreme behaviour in any respect is often uh, comes from another pathological disorder, so a kind of borderline personality disorder, and there's many of those or some sort of pathology, uh, a sociopathy, or even a psychopathy, in, in essence. It's because it's about the idea that you, can't, you can only feel within your experience. That's quite a complicated thought process. I completely understand that actually because that my mother does behave like that so she there are other aspects of her life where she shows no empathy whatsoever which is it sounds like a dismissive thing to say but it, it, it seems to go hand in hand with not understanding that people might find her environment horrible and unwelcoming and she's also like that with in a public setting kind of thing so maybe that does go hand in hand if you're so unaware of your environment generally. yeah so you might say we might say that somebody with bdp bpd sorry a borderline personality disorder is very likely to fly off the handle at any given thing one minute they can be feeling extremely sad and sorry and the next minute they can flip over into enraged or angry or furious i mean is that something you recognise? Not, not in my own mother, no, no, not at all. But there are personality issues, I think, that with narcissism, I think. Yeah. Uh, so more that side of things. Yeah, so not, not, not unstable mood or anything like that. Right, so it's not BPD and that's a No, I, don't think so. I guess what I'm saying is there often, yeah, <laughs> there often is some other, something else yes. going on, that, and it's simply expressing itself mm. in this way. So the thing about um, sociopathy or sociopaths are very often people who have had an experience of trauma. And when we talk about trauma, we often try to reflect on one big event. Mm. And that's not necessarily... Yeah, but that's not necessarily how trauma represents itself. It can be the death of a thousand cuts. Mm. Um, It can be a long, ongoing pressure, abuse. I remember abuse is reflected in uh, emotional, neglective, physical and sexual, and those are all 
treated as equally abusive. And somebody who has grown up under uh, the, that kind of traumatic pressure of living in a high-pressure environment as a child could experience that as a trauma. The whole of one's childhood could be considered a trauma mm-hmm. and certainly would be sufficient sometimes to push somebody into that deeply narcissistic state um, that we call sociopathy. With that in mind, as the child hoarder, uh, where what kind of generic, broad advice would you give for somebody who thinks, oh, this is me or this is my parent? What, where would you say to start if they had had no help or you know or not spoken to anywhere? Really well? And the first thing I'd say to the child of a narcissist is, go to therapy for your trauma. It's your trauma growing up with a. Uh, well, I don't need to tell you. <laughs> growing up with. Growing up with a narcissist, full stop, never, never mind somebody who has allowed uh, that expression of their fear to completely overshadow uh, everything, every aspect of their lives. And it means that, to a greater extent, you didn't exist next to her fear. Your needs didn't even register on the marker uh, next to her fears. So uh, managing her fear and her comfort was her primary concern. And you will have inevitably have been an interruption in that process and often an irritant in that process. Mm -hmm. And how are you supposed to grow up with a a sense of your own worth, of your value, never mind any kind of agency in the world? How do I operate in the world Mm -hmm. if if I always see myself as an irritant or an interruption to somebody else's process? So the first thing I would say to anybody, and I'm sure this is not the first person to say this, is that you go and find a way, talk to somebody who can help you to identify who you are in your own right and who you have always been. Mm-hmm. Once, the, once the child of a hoarder can, or any kind of narcissistic expression, one of the things that we grow up without, and I grew up with a narcissist as well, mm-hmm. just not one that expressed herself in that way, but what it meant was I grew up with an, an innate sense of my own lack of worth. I didn't count as much. Mm-hmm. And whenever I asked for anything for myself at all as a child, that's as I remember it, I was met with how could I be so selfish to ask for something that I knew she couldn't give? How could I make her feel so terrible about herself as a parent by asking for anything that I needed? Mm-hmm. So obviously I grew up with a very strong sense that having any needs at all would be a bother to, to the world around me. And I think that any child who grows up with somebody who is making their own pathology much more important than you, than any aspect of you, then you have to go and figure out how to be a person, how to take up any space of your own, and how to take up more of it. Lots of us walk around feeling small and making ourselves small. It's very, very common um, that anorexia or bulimia um, is a response to growing up with a hoarding parent. Really? Or an as, a, parent. as a physical manifestation yes, of being of not taking up to space. space. Or the opposite. Well, it's the opposite. It's exactly the same, which is, um, the, which is to become obese. It's the idea of taking up as much space as you can. But then there's a humiliation about taking up so much space because you were told that you were a waste of space. Wow. Um, so there's lots of other manifestations. It's very, very difficult to have created any kind of internal locus of evaluation mm. if 
we were brought up with somebody's external expression of fear. Mm. That's really that's that really makes a lot of sense to me as as an external expression of something as. As somebody uh, who didn't express emotions in any other way, that makes... Oh, for my mother, that is. She didn't. No, not at all. Still doesn't really. And so that makes a lot of sense. That was her expression, I guess. But it's only an expression of one emotion, which is fear. Mm, sure, yeah. So you grew up with somebody who lived in fear. Mm. Um, if... Because I'm conscious that our listeners might want to help the, the hoarder that uh, they're with okay. rather, as well as themselves or rather yeah. than themselves. What if you aren't affected as a child of a hoarder but you know somebody who you think is a hoarder and you want them to get help? How would you go about that, given how mm. kind of tricky I think if you have a friend or a, who you suspect is a hoarder, somebody who you used to go around to their house and it was always a bit of a mess, but recently they don't want you in there anymore at all, they keep you on the doorstep and you suspect that that's there... Um, and you'll sort of know anyway because they'll have a neurotic sort of personality people who get very very upset or um, unlike your mum I think your mum is an absolute extreme version Mm -hmm. and I'm really sorry to hear that you had to grow up Mm -hmm. in that way and that you still have that to deal with on a day-to-day basis and I hope that you're getting the support you need when the government rewrote the white paper on abuse in the late mid-90s I think it was Mm -hmm. um, they changed the way that they described uh, childhood abuse Mm -hmm. and they made a very clear point of putting neglect, emotional abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse, meaning battery together on the same line and there's a paragraph beneath it that states they are not to be seen as uh, in an in order of severity, that they are all wow. of equal measure, mm. because the damage to a child is equal. Wow! Mm. In these, in, in any of these four instances, mm. that's amazing. Because it's because when I look back on my childhood, there's a this is therapy. Sorry, but there's a sense of it was always going to be saying, oh, you know, I was clothed to to a degree, I was fed, I mm-hmm. I'm educated. You know, I, I who am I to complain? Nobody ever beat me. Nobody was ever even mean to me. And mm-hmm. so, how dare I kind of think that I had a bad childhood, even though it, it was awful in so many ways? So there is a real sense of that. Actually, I guess yeah. a lot of people who have been neglected. Would say that, that. yeah. But lots of people who've, who've experienced childhood abuse, and I'm going to call it that because that's what it was. That's what my partner was saying. Was like, um, a lot of people, a lot of people who've experienced childhood abuse would will list their most basic needs. Yeah, my yeah. most basic needs were, were met. met. Yeah, mm, sure. Um, so but in terms of complaining, yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah. uh, so my parents just about managed to scrape me through the bottom layer, which mm. basically means all you're saying is um, they didn't kill me. I survived. Yeah, yeah. they didn't kill mm. me. That's I, I, I managed to be alive, mm. and that's not really yeah, saying very much <laughs> at all. If you know somebody who is an extreme hoarder, then you have to alert your doctor you have to tell the police the social services you have to um, tell a doctor you have to tell anybody that you and everybody the official that you can because that person um, is hurting themselves they are suffocating in their own mess it's a form of suicide self-harm do you think that's really interesting do you think now it's being reclassified by um, who as a mental health disorder do you think that will change how people are able to treat it i hope so I hope so, and I also hope that it means that there's more study done about it, because most of most of uh, the reading I've done is anecdotal. It's from therapists like me, working on the back foot, 
by experience, one client at a time. Mm. There's no real research. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't appear in the DSM. Mm. So I think there does need to be loads more work done on it. And maybe there hasn't been an expression of this in the, in history in quite the same way as there is now because we because we're a hoarding society. We've got more space. Mm. We. We build lofts, we dig out attics, we put on annexes, we buy garden sheds. Um, we have storage units. Mm. Storage units. Why do we have storage <laughs> units? You can't see it. What can you possibly <laughs> do with it? What use could you have? Mm. We are a society of hoarders. Mm. So it's, not, it's only one or two steps further from where you are right now, mm. potentially, that could trip you over into a place of real neurosis and neurotic uh, capacity for collection to keep the world out or to keep yourself safe uh, maybe they're the same thing I don't know in terms of actually confronting somebody perhaps say you live with who you are a bit worried about might have some of this might be veering towards a kind of more neurotic collecting mm. um, that could be come hoarding I think a gentle suggestion that their anxieties they might be meeting their anxieties and their fears by collecting these things and that might there might be a message in what they're collecting mm. and that if they don't feel like going to therapy um, about that to talk about that that maybe tell the GP that their anxiety is getting a little bit out of hand. Mm. Because what that collecting does is it's managing your anxiety. Mm. It's saying, if I do this, I'll feel a bit better. It's a short-term answer to a long-term problem. Mm. And if we don't answer it in the short term, then it can start taking over everything. Mm. And that's true of almost everything somebody comes to a therapist for. Mm. It's a sort of addiction. Hoarding is very often seen in a similar kind of vein to any other addiction. Mm. Once I, I start doing it because it makes me feel better, mm. and then doing it becomes the thing I do. Yeah. And then I can't remember why I started doing it. I just know that there's something really bad on the other side of not doing it. And I don't remember what it is, mm-hmm. and I'm not willing to take the risk of finding out, so I'm just going to carry on doing it until I can't do it anymore. And that's why it's a kind of suicide bid. Mm. It's like the longest, slowest suicide because eventually we just choke the life out of everything that was ever good mm. oh, that's definitely my mother particularly just if if you say you're a hoarder she says I just live like this I like it that's that that's her answer is that is that just bullshit or can that be true can somebody just be happy living like that um, I, well <laughs> happy is a funny old word isn't it because that's just another emotion mm. uh, it's not a state of being I think we often say oh, I am I am happy but it's not I am happy, it's I feel happy. It's going to it's here one minute and it's gone the next, just like all other feelings. If your mother is saying, uh, this is the way I live, this is the way I choose to live, it's my right to live this way, she's right. It is her right to live this way. As, and, until that begins to impede on the health, safety and welfare of a child or, or social health, um, in terms of rubbish spilling out into the house or rats, rats or, yeah. <laughs> um, and other things until it becomes a social issue we have the right to live however we want to live mm. it's really hard to allow somebody to live in that state mm. um, but ultimately we, you cannot you can, keep, you can drag somebody out of their home 
but they will immediately begin that hoarding process again yeah. until until they choose to want to do it differently. You have to want it. It's a bit like if you say to a smoker, any smoker, why do you smoke? First answer will be, uh, because I like it. Mm-hmm. It's a defensive response. Mm-hmm. I like it, I choose it. Why are you even bothering me with your questions? Mm-hmm. We all know, without a shadow of a doubt, the only reason smokers enjoy smoking is because they have a di- an addiction and it meets their need. Mm-hmm. Most people... Have, uh, who grow up, a lot of people who grow up with narcissistic parents or, or have abusive childhoods develop some form of addiction. That addiction is, I get to meet my need all by myself mm. without you. I don't need another person to meet this need. All I need is the price of a packet of cigarettes and a lighter, and I'm good to go. Mm. Mm. It's an expression of not needing anybody else. Every time I light a cigarette, it says, I don't need anybody else. Mm. And that's the marvellous and miraculous thing that children do to stay alive when their needs aren't being met. The first thing they do is talk themselves out of needing that thing. They say, I didn't need that anyway. And then they turn the fact that they're so independent into a good thing. Mm. Yeah, the thing about me is, right, I'm just so independent that, um, <laughs> that I don't need anybody or anything. And I think that's really cool because yeah. I could just go around in my life and like I'm not needy or clingy or anything because I don't need anybody. But of course, it's the opposite is true. Mm. Um, so addictions are a really good way of helping us to prove to ourselves yeah. that we don't need anybody or anything. And it may well be that when your mother is surrounded by her hoarding, by her collections, that she That's literally it. feels as though she needs nothing else mm. from anyone, that mm. she's purely independent. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Actually. And therefore safe. Yeah. Because if you don't need anybody, then nobody can let you down, nobody can hurt you. I, I felt that a lot from her, and she's never been maternal or affectionate or warm, because I, and I've, I've probably pathologise that if that's the word to, I've kind of gone well she can't she's unable to feel that because she's scared so I've made that up in my yeah. head but she probably is scared but what a childhood thing to do I know but that's so generous and that's what children do my mum my mum can't do that for me because yeah. she's so sick yeah that's, you have to do that though don't you what else well, because, you because, because, because otherwise it's yeah. your fault yeah mm. and that's what we grow up with our dark secret our monster under the bed is that we are truly unworthy of love and that that's the thing that we create a smokescreen to protect ourselves from. Because let's face it, when you grow up, all mothers love their children. Peter and Jane books, mm. everything you see on TV, everything in your childhood learning says mothers love their children. Mm. And they love them in these very specific and ways. And as well, yeah. Like, oh, you love your mum and she's the first person you call. And Absolutely. So if you yeah. don't fit that, if your mum doesn't love you the way that I'm talking about as a four-year-old... Mm. When you first enter society outside of your home, you go to school, and then you notice all around you that children are being loved differently on TV, in your friends, um, in the storybooks. Children, because they're four and have no processing facilities outside of their own very minute experience, come to the conclusion, obviously, it's because I'm not lovable. If my mum doesn't love me the way everybody else's mum is loving them, why? What's wrong with me? There's either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with her. But my life depends on her being okay, Mm, so it has to be me. Mm, And then we harbour that as our deepest, darkest secret from Mm. the age of three or four years old and build everything around us to protect anybody from ever finding out, Mm. including ourselves. Mm. 
So I don't... It feels to me like your mum's gone way too far. And mm. maybe this is an expression of either sociopathy or psychopathy. And both of those things are almost untreatable. Psychopathy mm. is utterly untreatable. Um, I once heard a definition from a psychiatrist that was very, very useful. It said that, um, that narcissists are... It's, it's like the very, very thin edge of the wedge, of a sociopathic wedge. Mm. It's a very childlike state. It's somebody who's never grown up She's beyond adolescence. So state. that fits chimes massively. Okay, so that's all narcissists. But not all narcissists move into being sociopaths. Mm. Sociopaths are people who are grown out of traumatic experiences where every aspect of their empathy becomes so utterly limited or dulled that they can no longer feel anything outside of their experience. A psychopath is just the same as a sociopath except they were born that way. Mm. Okay, right. So sociopaths are made by their experience, either by trauma or inferred trauma from a social upbringing, uh, whereas psychopaths are born with the wiring already all done up. Um, So there may be something you can do with a sociopath who has been made, Mm. but not one that's potentially lived, who's stewing in there. Yeah, exactly. Who doesn't talk about something, yeah. Who can't speak about it, yeah. Wow. But you can be saved. Thanks so much to Hazel and Rachel for that great piece. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something from it and it might be of use to you in your life. We've got another great podcast coming up for you um, on Wednesday, which will be a... Oh, this is quite complicated because I'm recording this before, but the event will be after when you say it. So we it will be our live recording from the London Podcast Festival, which took place yesterday, although that is currently tomorrow in my world. And we have great guests, comedian Angela Barnes, Imriel Morgan from the Wannabe Podcast, and Chidera Egaru who you might better know as the author, The Slumflower. Coming up the week after that, we will have a gig cast, uh, which will be one of our shows from Edinburgh. If you'd like to come to one of our shows, you've still possibly got time. I don't know, you might sneak in. There are possibly enough tickets that you can count on one hand left for our show in Cheltenham, which is September the 18th. Sally Phillips, The Scumpy Mummies and Sarah will be at that That's our Sarah Millican, of course, and that will be me. And if you want to see Mickey on stage, I mean, who doesn't? Um, She will be with Sarah again at our show at the Leicester Square Theatre when we have some terrific guests, Nigella Lawson, Samira Ahmed and Jodie Branger. And if you're thinking about planning a bit further ahead, October the 28th, we are back at Leicester Square with guests June Sarpong, Stacey Solomon and Lisa Riley. And in November, we've just announced we're doing another one of our special International Men's Day themed shows because, you know, we've got to let the men talk every so often. And because it's important to point out, gender inequality sucks for everybody. That's not actually on International Men's Day, which... I think we all know if we follow Richard Herring, it's on November the 19th. Our show is on November the 20th. Mentioned Richard Herring. He will be there. Hooray. Along with Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. So get booking for one of those. Remember, if you enjoyed this, rate us, review us. I don't know. Maybe give us five stars. You know, I leave that to your conscience. If you can sleep at night giving us less stars than that. Well, you know, that's between you and your God. 
What you can also do is press the subscribe button. Whether or not you get around to listening to it for another six months, actually, that helps us because it helps our listening figures, which helps sell us to advertising. Advertising, as you know, helps keep us going. And if you'd like maybe to help us keep us going by visiting our Patreon page, we'd welcome you doing that too. Enough of my waffling. Go back to the rest of your Sunday. Until next week, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.